Hello, my name is Michelle Yanachan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Cox and Kings, Toomey, and Ultimate Library. On this very special Safari edition, I'm joined by Geoffrey Kent, discussing his memoir called Safari, by chance, a book which opens in Nairobi, Kenya, and follows him on his travels all over the world, from the Nile to Nepal, Brazil to Botswana, Papua New Guinea to the polar regions. Somewhere along the way, he penned his stories of exploration, of adventure, of the pull of the open road. As he built up his business, Abercrombie & Kent, the travel company renowned for its meticulous planning, taking travellers into hard-to-reach wildernesses and cultures. Jeffrey, welcome. Lovely to see you again, Michelle, even though we're separated a little bit. Mm, it was much nicer to be in person. Jeffrey, in one of the first chapters of your book, you recount your purchase of a 250cc two-stroke split-twin Steyr Daimler Pook for £300, which could do 100 miles per hour. Age 16, you set off from Nairobi by motorbike, solo, bound for Cape Town. And I want to ask you if you remember the feeling you had at the time of the transaction when you bought the bike, handed over the money, and realised you were free. Ah, no, but you know, everybody asked me, which business school did I go to? But it's very hard to explain. I was expelled from school at 16, and my business school was an Indian wheeler-dealer, motorbike seller called Sohan Singh. And I knew immediately I'd pay too much for the bike, all right? That was point one. Point two, I'm joking. Point now, I was exhilarated. Because I, I already had another bike. I had a, I had a Triumph Speed Twin, uh, but it was a four-stroke. But this one was better for off-road because you could mend it. You know, two-stroke is easier to fix. And so when I got that bike, it was so fast. Because usually, usually two strokes were not that was a very, very fast machine, made in Austria, um, Daimler Putsch. It was an amazing, an amazing bike. So yeah, I was thrilled. I said, now I can really hit the road. So I loved it. Well, the route you took is fascinating too, because that was the late 1950s, I think, more than 60 years ago. And yeah. many of the countries... 58. Then many of the countries had different names, like Tanzania was Tanganyika and Northern Rhodesia, I think where you were born, Zambia now, Nyasaland, Malawi now. Well done, exactly. Uh, well, much more has changed than that. I, if you were doing the same journey today, Jeffrey, which you probably have, how would it be different? Let me ask that another way. I was reading a very, very good book, and it was written by a member of a family who grew up in, in, in all of those countries, Kenya, then I call Zambia, when they first when there was uh, Southern Rhodesia, then, northern, then they went to Northern Rhodesia. But it's an amazing book. But there, there comes a time when they've got to go from Northern Rhodesia, now Zambia, to Nyasaland, now Malawi. And they looked at it up and said, oh, this is an easy one. We just go across here. And it's a short trip, like a day. Or they go the other way, which is five days. And this is now. So guess what they did? They had a big, big meeting, and they said, no, much safer to go the long way. And of course, Jeffrey Kent, 1958, had a shell map, 
and he left government house where I was staying in, in Malawi, then the Ethelair. And I went the short way, and of course, that's why I ended up no ferry in the Zambezi River, um, bike underwater, eating catfish and pieces of crocodile for about a month until a Rhodesian Army patrol took me in. But obviously, if I'd done research, I'd have gone a long way. But I didn't. I just went. So, how, I mean, you didn't actually mention immigration checkpoints at, at the borders very much in the book. Were they, was it very easy to go across them? Was it, did it not really matter? Was it kind of... They were quite fierce. They were very determined, yeah, because, of course, you were going through the whole self, you know, you were going through the revolution period at that time. You know, Mau Mau, it just was full speed ahead, Mau Mau, in Kenya. Um, in Nyasa land, you had, I think his name was Dr. Hastings Banda, was imprisoned by the British. Um, yeah, and so they're all pretty strict. Well, I mean, we have become more familiar than we want to be with the notion of hard borders with travel rules and restrictions um, that have come into play in the last couple of years. So I wonder, you know, was it this youth rather than ease that got you across all these borders that, in fact, were quite troublesome? I think um, I was lucky. I think I think I was really lucky. Yeah, because I had no planning at all. I mean, I literally walked out the house. I didn't, I didn't even know 10 minutes of planning with anybody who'd been. I just thought you get a map and you follow the map. And it's always easy. Follow the road and it'll take you to Cape Town. Jeffrey, when you're travelling overland in that way, it's at a much slower pace, obviously, than if you were getting into a jet plane. And it's a different set of observations, watching the land roll by, the people change and the way they look or what they eat or how they dress or what they speak. What memories do you have of that time? Of that trip, I remember still every part of that trip. I mean, literally, the people I met, and you're right, on a motorbike, it rolls extremely slowly, and you're going slowly, you're stopping. You see a nice restaurant. Even in a fast car, you don't stop. In a motorbike, you stop. Well, that looks fun. And you stop, and you're fine. Maybe it's been a day, maybe two days. And so I think motorbike is an incredible way to travel. I wish I could do it again. I, I noted in your book the four words your father said to you as you left Nairobi. You'll never make it, he said. I'm imagining yeah. times that might have spurred you on. For example, you came off your bike in Tanzania. Was was that, in in fact, part of the motivation for the road trip? Or what else was going on in your head as you took off? My father always said things that to me. I'm just doing an interview now and writing a book, part of a book. And they're asking him, what would your dad say if he, if he was still alive and you showed him Abercrombie and Kemp today? Do you know what my dad would say? You're making it all up. Because he never believed. <laughs> he never believed I could take a, a one a one a one truck pony, whatever you call it, into what we built. You know, never. My mum, yeah, sure, mummy obviously did really well. But he was quite negative, my father. So without wanting to sound like the psychiatrist on the couch, but um was that part like was that part of it? Was it kind of the proving that you could take on a journey like that on your own at that age? Yeah, he thought I had no chance. I mean, but he's right. I mean, he was, a, he was a very skilled tactician. He was a very good, great on strategy. He thought everything through a lot, where I'm very impetuous. I'm like, you know what? Nothing's going to stop me. And I don't do too much planning. If I believe I can do it, then I get into, and I'm very good at last-minute planning. 
as we go. So I had no idea all that would happen, you know. And um, so no, when I had the 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 worst thing about the fall was my father must not find me because then he'd say he'd come and pick me up. So you failed. You didn't even get to Arusha. Would have been the word around the Kent answer. You couldn't even get from Nairobi to Arusha. But you know, so no, nobody until of course I got to uh, the gate. You know, that will keep anyone going, won't it? Kind of proving our parents yeah. wrong. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was, he had pretty good pedigree, didn't he? Because he mapped the route from Kenya to Nigeria, you wrote in your book. That would have probably been, what, the 1930s? It was the 1930s. You know, my father, I learned so much from my father because he really was very, very clever. He was, he was all a detail, he was a detail guy. He'd know every mile before we went anywhere. He would write on a little notebook. He'd write all the mileage which you take from the map. He'd put the number of miles, the state of the road, and how long it would take in his estimation. And that's how I grew up. For instance, he said, "Let's go and shoot a guinea fowl tonight before we go to bed, all right? Because you're not going to eat." He said, "But let me give you a bit of advice. Take with you a roll of loop paper." I said, "A roll of loop paper? Why?" Because wherever you go, you've got to put a bit of loop paper on the thorn bush. Because the guinea fowl will take you all over Africa and you'll end up not, worrying, not knowing where you are. So to get back to camp, you follow the loop paper back. So that's what I always did. It was, I mean, a very simple tip, you know. Always, he said, sleep on a hornfield, sleep on a simple bed in the middle of the bush, but always carry with you a mosquito net. Because no lion will ever go through a mosquito net. They'll, they'll walk around it, but they'll never come through a mosquito net, ever. And so, so I grew up with very simple, really good things, you know, which came from my father. But my mother was like super salesman, plus 100, you know. Mommy can sell anybody anything. Jeffrey, dig deep for me for a minute and, and try to, to define what makes you want to get on the road again and again. You learn so much from other people. I mean, I've learned a ton of things from the different people I've met around the world, all the countries I've been to. One of the scenes you mentioned at the start of the book is the Great Migration, which is the annual cyclical movement of two million wildebeest from the Serengeti up to the Masai Mara and back again and again. And you also note in your book, in the Pribilof Islands of Alaska, three million birds... 800,000 fur seals, all migrating. And it strikes me as we talk about movement and crossing borders that these creatures, of course, don't know about our manufactured boundaries, unless, of course, we put up a fence or destroy their habitat. I wanted to ask you how you've witnessed the great animal migrations of the world changing, whether because of climate or conflict, for example, and if you could cite some examples of that. Well, I mean... I mean, you know, you you have the you have that great migration in southern Sudan, which I saw years ago in seventy seventy eight seventy nine. I believe, from what I've heard, that's no longer there anymore because human humans are the biggest. Uh, they wipe out migrations. Human beings, right? We're the reason, not any other reason. But I hear the monarch butterflies. That's beginning to die out now. You know. And so everything that we had is dying out fast. And you know, I think the wildebeest migration is the only one 
still in existence from when, when I was born. So we, we, our generation, had it all, and we've ruined for whatever reason. I mean, you, I remember one of the last lines um, in your book you, you say is your chief philosophy, as you call it, anticipate the future and its sustainability. Yes, yeah. cheers. Have a short echo. Have a short echo. Mm, it could not be more fitting for this moment in history. You know, how are you, therefore, given what you've just said, anticipating the future and its sustainability? Well... Probably I sound like my father. Maybe, maybe that's what happens. You know, you you become as you get older, you you seem to you seem to lose with what you see around you. And the trouble is, I've been there. I mean, we have to work in a superhuman way uh, to to protect the Earth now. But even so, it's going to be difficult because the ice is melting. The ice in in Greenland is melting fast. Don't know how you stop that. It's melting. In the South Pole, very fast, and so I'm a believer that the climate change is here, and actually I think we should be spending a lot of our money and our thought on on protecting ourselves from it. That it is going to happen, and what we're going to do about it. And I, I think we're going to go back to a, whatever happens, a far far simpler life because there's so many people in the world. Jeffrey, returning to the book, after your motorcycle ride you joined the army as you just said and at one point you worked under major general john frost in malta hmm. he turns to you and says find the one thing that would make you feel as though you've done nothing with your life if you don't accomplish it he goes on to say it's nice seeing the world but england's my home the army will fly you anywhere you like at the end of your service you have to decide where your home is so i wanted to ask you jeffrey where do you feel most at home well that's one of the hardest questions is, so I usually ask everybody, so define what's at home. The best way to answer it is where your dogs are, where your kids are, right? That's where your home is. But you remember how it used to be, travel used to be such a rare treat, and then it became, you know, something we did many times a year. But where we are now on that kind of roller coaster, given climate and now conflict to... I, I wonder if travel will again become a, a rare treat, a kind of a, wonder, a wondrous rare treat. First of all, I understand what you're saying about the sensitivity of the land, about, about you know, the warming of the planet, etc. But one thing we've got to also understand, we're the people who bring people to see gorillas, right? To see the wildebeest migration. You asked about it. But if you don't have clients coming, they wouldn't be there because there's no money to support the game rangers and all of the staff who are taking care of it. So you're part of the chain. So you may save on the fuel or the plane getting there, but all the 400 of my gorillas, which is half the gorillas in the world, in Windy Uganda will die because you're wiring about a bit of fuel. Uh, you know, we're there actually to bring sustainable tourism to individual people who are guarding wildlife, flora and fauna. The problem is we live in a very delicate world and we've got to support these people. Otherwise, these animals will not be there for sure. That I know. Finally, Jeffrey, if you could take a book with you, any book, what would it be and where would you read it? I'd probably take an Ernest Hemingway book, like Green Hills of Africa, all about the greater kudu and... I know it's all about 
it's about a safari, but you know, but I think you need something classic like that to reread. One of the books you cite, though, Jeffrey, in your book, which gave was real, felt real resonant with me, was West with the Night, Beryl Markham. Oh, that's a brilliant book, and I've read that so many times. Oh wow! I take two books. I take West with the Night and Ernest Hemingway, because one's about Solid Safari, and, and West with the Night, she's so clever. I mean, that's a beautiful book, and all about Magnus Fager Club, it reminds me of my mother, and Fearless, my mum was Fearless. But yeah, so that's more like Way of Life, West with the Night, whereas Ernest Hemingway was, was what I tried to do with Safari, even with Safari, because he was the one who really captured Safari in his true element, I think. Jeffrey Kent, thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you very much. Always enjoy our talk. And my thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Cox and Kings, Toomey and Ultimate Library. Goodbye. <laughs>